Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War was a conflict between armies that fought in full view of one another on battlefields whose names we all know, like Shiloh and Gettysburg. But the outcomes of those battles were influenced by another war, one fought in the shadows by people whose names are known only to careful Civil War readers, if they are known at all. We'll learn about some of them from Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P- O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Proke, coming to you tonight from the traditional home of the show on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, speaking for the university or for anyone else, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself, as we always do here. It is January of 2020, and it's cold outside by North Carolina standards. It's down in the low 40s. People are reacting irrationally as they tend to do around here, bundling up absurdly or still wearing shorts and T-shirts, in spite of the fact it's actually a bit chilly, uh, when, of course, uh, those of us from the north get to mock the, the locals for their uh, their response to what they consider cold weather. 
but I probably shouldn't say anything about that because then something will happen uh, uh, to me. I'll slip on some ice if there's any ice ever this winter. Uh, last week, for example, I mentioned East Carolina basketball. They, they won a big game a couple weeks ago. And sure enough, as I, I guessed might happen, I jinxed them thoroughly. They lost Wednesday night. They got clobbered again over the weekend. So no more uh, talk about them or the local weather. It's a time of year when, uh, in in years past, we'd be talking about the big sports events of the year, which, of course, is the... Uh, Beast of the East uh, Youth Soccer Tournament back in the days when my daughters played and uh, I would coach one of their teams. Uh, those days are, are, are gone. Sadly, you can listen to old shows where I share with you the scores of Greenville Stars soccer. Uh, quite nostalgic about that. The uh, older daughter, Caroline, was home over the weekend and it was it was just like old times, but she was not running around looking for her cleats and shin guards. She was getting ready to go back to medical school at the end of the weekend. So times have changed indeed. Uh, Looking ahead instead of backward, while it's cold outside now, the spring of 2020 is not as far off as one might think. Time to make plans for all kinds of interesting things to do. Uh, I mentioned it uh, regularly, the Civil War Tours presented by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours are one thing you, uh, I hope, will consider doing, joining me in May or October of this year for a tour, or call, contact Gettysburg College about the Civil War Institute in June. It's a great event every year. Uh, Last week, I mentioned an off-the-beaten-track recommendation for something that I'm not in any way part of, just thought was very interesting, the Weeksville Society, www.weeksville.org, in Brooklyn, where they have preserved a uh, a stretch of antebellum homes owned by uh, African Americans who lived there before the Civil War, a little piece of antebellum history in the middle of New York City. Uh, Check it out if you're in the area. This week's off-the-beaten-track recommendation for something to do is literally off-the-beaten-track. It's an email I got from the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides at Gettysburg. They are holding their spring seminar this year on May 1st and May 2nd. It's a weekend-long series of visits to sites at Gettysburg and talks by people who know what they're talking about. Uh, The title of this year's seminar is Overlooked and Often Not Visited, Ridges, Farms, and Other Battle Sites. And I believe that means they'll be going to places in the Gettysburg area that aren't part of the National Military Park, that are uh, privately owned or uh, otherwise not currently part of the Battlefield Park but are still places where significant things happened. So that sounds to me like a really interesting thing, uh, a way to see Gettysburg that, uh, in a way that you don't normally get to do. So that's the Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides. If you're interested, go to their website, Gettysburg Tour Guides, all one word, gettysburgtourguides.org. And if you're not going anywhere, stay here, stay inside, stay warm. 
<coughs> excuse me, listen to Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, uh, Christian Keller will be our guest. He'll be talking about his new book, The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. In February 2020, we'll start the month with Megan Kate Nelson returning to the show. Her new book, The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West, is one that uh, people are talking about. So I'm very interested to read that one. On February 12th, we will have a show recognizing the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, No more to say about that yet at this point. And on February 19th, uh, William Griffing is the host of a remarkable website called Spared and Shared, where he has transcribed many, many letters from Civil War participants. So if you can't get to the archive and look at letters in person, here's a chance to, to experience a remarkable trove of Civil War letters, and he'll talk about how he came to create that. That's on February 19th. <clears throat> and you can always keep up with all these things on www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney puts up the latest news. He does the same on the Impediments of War Facebook page. Go ahead and like the page. Go to the website. Uh, click on the Donate PayPal button. Send your hard-earned cash to Civil War Talk Radio, and I'll do with it as I please. Um, but in some cases, we'll even buy books that you'll hear about on the show. It's not tax-deductible. It's not a charity. So many things going on, but tonight we are talking about an aspect of the war we really have not touched on in the 15 years of Civil War Talk Radio. Well, I shouldn't say never. Corey Recco's uh, book about Timothy Webster was our, our topic of a little while ago. But typically, we've not talked about the uh, the underworld, the, uh, the spies, the intelligence gatherers of the Civil War era. And that's the topic of the book Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, by Douglas Waller. Mr. Waller, are you there? Yes. Hi, Jerry. Good to talk to you. You too. Welcome to the program. So, um, this is a uh, <clears throat> a big book uh, on a, a big topic. Uh, but before asking about that, I, I see on the inside dust jacket you've written about spies or intelligence in other capacities before. Uh, what's your background that brought you to this topic? Well, yeah. First off, I yeah, a little truth in advertising. I'm not a Civil War historian. Don't even play one on TV. I covered the CIA for Newsweek and then Time magazine, and I also uh, wrote uh, several books on intelligence. One was on uh, Wild Bill Donovan, who was the uh, Franklin Roosevelt spy master for the Office of Strategic Services, and the next book was on four top spies for Donovan who, in the war who later became CIA directors like Alan Dulles. For my next book, I wanted to stay in the intelligence field, but I just simply decided to switch wars uh, and look at espionage in the Civil War. And I'm glad I did, because uh, the more research in it, I've, you know, I found it to be a fascinating subject. 
as you mentioned, uh, it hasn't been heavily covered, uh, and there are also a lot of books out there that are of you know questionable credibility. So you have to do a lot of cutting, you know, cutting through the wheat and the chaff. Well, there's no no question about that. That uh, uh, some topics draw people who, as you say, are not necessarily uh, you know lifetime students of the Civil War and. Uh, those books can can range in, in quality. I, there's a book that I've, I've not presented on this show, but I use it with my graduate students as an, as an example of what not to do. And one of the red flags is where the author says, I've written a dozen books on the names of all these topics. Now I thought I'd try a Civil War book. And that that can that can be a, a caution. On the other hand, when when your book is blurbed by uh, people like James McPherson and they uh, point out how uh, deeply researched it is, that that certainly uh, gives it some credibility. Let me ask though uh, about the the topic as a whole. Uh, the title is Lincoln's Spies, and you you focus in particular on four individuals that we'll talk about this evening. But they're not just spies, it seems to me. There, there's, this book is, uh, looks at what might, people you might call scouts, uh, looks at military intelligence very, I would say very broadly. Uh, it's well, not just it, it the James Bond of the Civil War. Right. It does in many ways, uh, because intelligence organizations back then uh, not only, uh, you know, did cloak and dagger work, but they also investigated, you know, just criminal activity, because a lot of criminal activity back then was considered a a national security threat. So uh, you found uh, intelligence groups uh, looking at, you know, looking for counterfeiters, uh, contraband runners, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, 'er ne'er-do-wells, in addition uh, to, you know, trying to collect secrets. It all got lumped into one uh, kind of one one grouping there. Um, so, and in fact, uh, it's interesting during the Civil War, very few people used the word spies or espionage in it. Uh, mm-hmm. They were collecting information, they were scouting, uh, or whatever. So the traditional, what we see today, you know, jargon of, uh, you know, intelligence activity didn't, ex- didn't really exist during the Civil War. A lot of the uh, people who were spies, like Elizabeth Van Loo, one of my main characters, didn't really consider herself a spy. She considered herself a loyalist uh, to the, uh, the United States government. Well, she, you know, an upper-class woman who lives in Richmond throughout the war, a, a Southerner, who, as you say, remains loyal to the United States, she doesn't work for the government. She's not on the payroll. Uh, and, and in fact, none of these, well, uh, three of the four main characters you describe are not really um, institutionally connected to the United States until they start their, their activity. They are. I mean, and they really all begin really as amateurs. The four main characters that I examine in this book are Alan Pinkerton, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Van Loo, which we met, who we mentioned, George Sharp, and Lafayette Baker. Alan Pinkerton was a famous detective uh, nationwide uh, at the time, but he had no uh, uh, military intelligence background. In fact, that proved to be his undoing. 
Elizabeth Van Lu uh, came from a very wealthy family in Richmond and really started her own espionage ring on her own and learned as she went and became a very skilled uh, agent. Uh, Confederate uh, security authorities were never able to crack her ring. Uh, George Sharp was, you know, think of him kind of as a George Smiley type of character, a very learned man, went to top schools, could speak uh, French and Italian, uh, kept a book of verses in his coat pocket that he, of favorite poets that he routinely read to his men. Uh, but he learned espionage. Uh, he became General Joseph, uh, fighting Joe Hooker's uh, espion, top spy master. But he really learned it on the job. Lafayette Baker, uh, the fourth character in uh, my book, was an absolute scoundrel. Uh, he was a former vigilante from California who literally rode into Washington looking for a job with the Union and talked uh, General Winfield Scott, the agent army commander, uh, initially, into uh, you know, hiring him uh, as a spy. Uh, he had no training uh, whatsoever in espionage, but he was a good, fast talker and managed to talk his way into the job. But this is what you saw with uh, a lot of the espionage activity on both sides, on the north and the south, it was taken up by amateurs. There was, you know, keep in mind, there was no established secret service uh, on either side to begin with, no organized intelligence agency, no central intelligence agency. It was kind of, both sides were kind of like pick-up basketball games, <laughs> you know, getting your players as you went. It, it, as you say, there's no FBI, there's no CIA, there's no... Uh no, no uh, secret service. Uh, there, there, there's no nothing, and and it is it does get invented as we go. What we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back and talk about these four uh, quite remarkable characters uh, that you've written about. Our guest tonight is Douglas Waller. He's the author of Lincoln's Spies: Their Secret War to Save a Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. It's a book that looks at intelligence activities uh, in Virginia, in the Eastern Theater, uh, through the eyes particularly of four main characters, Alan Pinkerton, Elizabeth Van Loo, George Sharp, Lafayette Baker. And uh, uh, Doug, we introduced those four in, in the first segment. Uh, I'd like to start with Alan Pinkerton. It's a name that's familiar to everyone uh, as a security service today. Uh, and and uh, students of American history know that the Pinkerton Agency played roles in the labor struggles of the 19th century. And so on, but uh, it all starts with Alan Pinkerton. He was he was well known before the Civil War. Is that correct? Oh, he was. He had a national reputation as a detective, uh, and his detective agency uh, was quite successful. He became uh, General George McClellan's uh, spy master. Remember, McClellan was the the young Napoleon. Uh, Lincoln and the North were counting on to. Sh- to you know, mobilize quickly to bring this awful rebellion to an end. Uh, Pinkerton had some successes. He managed to uh, break up a Union spy ring in Washington. He recruited women uh, to be spies, African Americans, former slaves uh, to be spies, and he sent a lot of agents into Richmond, and he sent uh, McClellan voluminous uh, reports on what those agents found. But he turned out to be a failure as a military intelligence officer. He didn't really have a good grasp of uh, what the military needed in the way of intelligence and how quickly it, ne- it needed. And the most important failing he had was uh, Pinkerton uh, uh, told uh, General McClellan what he wanted to hear, not what his boss needed to hear. And that's a big difference, and it's a big deal. Uh, a good spy master uh, is one who speaks truth to power, who delivers, uh, who's unbiased in his uh, uh, reports. Uh, Pinkerton fed McClellan uh, highly inflated reports about Confederate troop strengths, which only fed into McClellan's delusion that uh, he was outnumbered by the Confederates. Uh, Pinkerton even spied for McClellan on, on Lincoln, which you're not supposed to do as an intelligence director. He, he, be, he adored uh, his boss, uh, but he didn't really serve him well. Well, there's no question that, that uh, as you say, Pinkerton was was an ally of, of McClellan and, and 
and, and even a psychophant gave what he wanted. Um, when you mentioned about McCollum being outnumbered, there there is some uh, there there are arguments. Uh, Leon Tenney's work in the 1990s, uh, in particular, uh, suggests that in fact McCollum was actually outnumbered at the uh, beginning of the Seven Days Battles. Uh, most books you read will will say otherwise, uh, and, and Tenney shows how a lot of the estimates of Confederate strength go back to Jubal Early and the Lost Cause arguments of the 19th century that undercounted Lee's troops in order to make uh, the Lost Cause look more more like we got beat by numbers. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if McClellan and Pinkerton together get maybe a worse rap for counting Lee's troops than they deserve. Uh, certainly not for uh, what you just said. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I don't believe so. Uh, I know there's a revisionist movement with McClellan, uh, and I've you know, talked to a number of those scholars and uh, and uh, you know re- read their work. Uh, if you read the reports uh, Pinkerton was sending McClellan, you find uh, a lot of math errors in them that uh, undercount the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the Confederate forces that, you know, McClellan could well have picked out if, uh, just from his, uh, high school mathematics. Uh, there are, uh, in several cases, uh, Pinkerton admits in his, uh, memos to McClellan that he is dialing up the numbers, that he is cooking the books and making them higher. Uh, and apparently the two men, uh, conferred on that, and McClellan agreed that, uh, he would dial up the numbers when you read the, uh, material. Edwin Fischel, uh, Edwin Fischel, a scholar, Civil War scholar, uh, in intelligence, uh, was the first to, uh, you know, disclose or to, to find these memos, and I went through them very, very closely. Uh, now, the fact remains that in McClellan's case, even if Pinkerton had, uh, uh, sent him more realistic numbers that were lower than what he did, and, you know, the numbers he was sending were double the number of, uh, of troops the Confederates actually had, but even if Pinkerton and sent him lower numbers, McClellan would have likely ignored them. Uh, and because uh, you see very often that McClellan's dialing up even more uh, the estimates that uh, Pinkerton's feeding him when McClellan is talking to Lincoln. Uh, so, I mean, and if you, when you, you actually look at all the counts and everything, uh, you can see McClellan was, you know, pumping up those numbers. Now, there's, as I say, though, there's, there's, uh, there are some revisionist historians that give uh, McClellan a little better treatment. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not probably one of those. <laughs> there are other forms of intelligence that uh, you write about that McClellan right. relies on. Uh, one that I thought was interesting was uh, balloons. Uh, you, you, that seems to be a you know, a novel and, and uh, technologically advanced way to find out what the enemy has. How effective was that? Well, it is. In fact, uh, this war, the Civil War, uh, saw a revolution in warfighting technology and the technology of intelligence. Uh, uh, the balloons, uh, hydrogen gas-filled balloons, were main, used mainly by the North. Uh, the South only made, managed to cobble together one uh, <laughs> one balloon from silk dresses, and uh, they uh, confiscated in Richmond. Uh, the the Northern side uh, used a half dozen or more more balloons, and they amounted to aerial reconnaissance, uh, and they were very effective early in the war. 
for for spotting uh, enemy uh, movements and for targeting artillery. They had some drawbacks, however. Uh, the uh, uh, the gondolas that hung under the balloons that uh, the uh, the aeronauts uh, sat in tended to spin around, which would make them terribly airsick. Uh, uh-huh. And as the balloons, which could get as high as 1,000 feet, uh, as they went up to about 250 feet or just above treetop, they were subject to sniper fire uh, from the Confederate side. So it made it dangerous to go up in them. And they also tended to drift off course uh, with the winds. Uh, the balloons only actually, interestingly enough, were used until the Gettysburg campaign. Uh, commanders decided they were just too much trouble to the worth because there was a lot of uh, big contraption you needed to build the, to produce the gas and transport the balloons and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But this was a this was a, a, a war where. Uh, technology uh, was experimented with quite a bit. I'll never forget going through the National Archive documents and seeing one proposal, for example, from a Philadelphia inventor who suggested that uh, the the Union Army build a a small balloon that would take up a camera that would have a wire connected to uh, stretch down to the ground where a soldier could uh, activate it to uh, snap the shutter and take a photo above. And I remember looking at this thinking, holy cow, this is an aerial drone. (laughs) That was 150 years later would be aerial drones. Now, it's interesting, the uh, Union officer, who was a project officer that was looking at the proposal, rejected it because he didn't see how the balloon up there could keep the camera steady enough to take a shot, which was probably the case back then. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. It would not have worked, but, but it is a remarkable yeah. idea. Um, another technological uh, development in the Civil War that our, our listeners all know about, of course, is the advanced use of railroads. And one of the people you mentioned is not one of your main characters, but I thought quite interesting, uh, Samuel Ruth. Uh, the uh, Confederate Railroad uh, executive, uh, that's a name that had not crossed my path before. What did he do? It's interesting because this was the first major railroad war uh, we saw. And both the North and the South uh, recognized that railroads were going to be critical in this war. Uh, McClellan did. Robert E. Lee, who came from an engineering background, certainly did. Samuel Ruth uh, was a uh, executive for a small rail line that stretched from Richmond up to Fredericksburg. Actually, it went beyond, but the Union captured some of that line. But uh, he was in charge of the rail system that supplied uh, very needed supplies uh, to Lee and Fredericksburg for the Battle of uh, Fredericksburg uh, and, you know, campaigns in, to the north. Ruth uh, kind of, he saw which way the wind was blowing after about the first year of the, of the war and realized the South was going to lose, so he started working against the South and started creating bottlenecks in his line, uh, didn't uh, repair things as quickly as he, as he should, uh, and was able to feed Union officers basically uh, intelligence uh, on the rail system that they found very helpful in targeting. In some cases, he, for example, he would put ads uh, in the Richmond newspapers announcing which uh, railroads, railroad lines were up and running and which bridges had been repaired, which was a perfect guide to the Union officers on which ones to, ones to re-attack. Uh, 
the Robert E. Lee uh, suspected uh, he was a traitor and wanted to put his own officers in charge of his his rail line. But Samuel Ruth had very powerful friends in Richmond who couldn't imagine that this fine, upstanding uh, citizen who had a perfect safety record in his railroad could be uh, working against the uh, South. And so they kept him in the job, and he kept on sabotaging his railroads and supplying the uh, Union intelligence. It's a remarkable story to work from the inside like that. And there were enough problems with railroads that you can see how uh, delays could could easily be hidden just uh, just make the delay oh, a day or absolutely. two longer and that was that was Ruth's cover that you know they couldn't you know was what he was he doing direct sabotage or was this just the natural inefficiency of the rail lines and keep in mind the south had a much more inefficient and patchwork rail system than the north had now, where, whereas Pinkerton is busy trying to find out what the enemy is up to, uh, Lafayette Baker, uh, you described him as a, a scoundrel uh, uh, in, in the first segment. Uh, he seems to spend more time in Washington uh, hunting down people in the city uh, who might be up to no good, but he might be up to no good. What? Uh, well, he was. Think of Lafayette Baker kind of as uh, uh, Lincoln's J. Edgar Hoover, with maybe two important differences. Number one, uh, Hoover had a lot more dealings uh, with his president. Uh, Baker uh, bragged that he and Lincoln were real tight, but that really wasn't the case. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, Baker was far more corrupt than uh, J. Edgar Hoover. He had a force of about, oh, 20 uh, detectives uh, on, on, on his payroll, he had a lot of other snitches and uh, agents uh, of you know various uh, reputations who worked for him, and they were in charge of uh, uh, you know hunting down uh, you know hostile Confederate agents in in uh, in the Washington area. He led raids into Maryland uh, to break up uh, supply rings or uh, groups that were. Uh, you know, taking, you know, let, sending letters and supplies through Maryland down to the south. Um, he loved to go out on his own, on his own uh, covert operations and do his own interrogations. <laughs> One of the things he liked to do with women uh, that he suspected of being no good is he would go up and literally tap on their breasts to see if he heard the sound of tin being uh, hit. It would indicate that they were uh, they were secreting uh, quinine uh, in tin uh, boxes in their corsets, uh, and that's the way he would catch them. Uh, he was also, uh, you know, people kind of wondered. I mean, his, his detectives abused their authority quite a quite a bit, arresting people without warrants and tossing them in jail for no legitimate reason. Uh, and other people war- wondered how this guy, who really uh, his salary was only something like about seven dollars a day, could ride around town on a you know a fancy black stallion, fit for a general stay in high price hotels, and have a wad of cash uh, in his pocket all the time. And he did so by abusing his expense account and shaking the money tree on a lot of the raids he he conducted uh, against uh, Confederate assets. Kind of did corruption the old-fashioned way. <laughs> did he and Pinkerton ever encounter each other? Did they were they oh, rivals? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they clashed. Uh, they didn't clash as much as they uh, 
could have, uh, simply because there was so much to do out there. They didn't really have time to deal with each other. But there were a number of instances where uh, Pinkerton would run across Baker's detectives and follow them, in some cases even uh, detain them. Uh, Baker, likewise, would snoop on Pinkerton's uh, operation uh, and, and, and spy on him. Uh, Baker also uh, clashed with uh, the uh, the Army of the Potomac uh, uh, officers. Uh, I mean, he went on campaigns like trying to confiscate liquor that was uh, coming down to the officers in the Army of the Potomac, which didn't help morale down there. Um, and at, at some points, generals threatened to you know shoot his men if they saw him in their operating areas. So uh, it, it, that points out that there's no central command here that Pinkerton. Uh, it, 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 well, he's initially they report to to Secretary of State Seward, and then later Secretary of War Stanton. But there's no there's no institutional check on any of these people. No, there isn't. There's no Central Intelligence Service. Uh, in fact, each general uh, on the Union side of the war was expected to, you know, set up uh, his own uh, intelligence operation, uh, particularly at the division, corps, and army army level. And uh, but and there was no central service uh, that they could tap into, and so you know whatever intelligence operations varied with a the skill of the general and the interest of the general in uh, you know in collecting intelligence. One other factor too is keep in mind uh, the officers on both sides. A good many of them knew the officers on the other side. They'd been classmates at West Point. So a lot of them didn't think they really needed that much intelligence on an opposing general. They, they thought they knew how he would react uh, in time of war because they'd seen him uh, as a classmate. Uh, so they, they, but it they was had very, that very fragmented of... until the end, really. And, and that, uh, the idea that each general sets up his own branch brings us to uh, the Army of the Potomac's uh, organization. We'll take another break and come back and talk about uh, George Sharp and intelligence in the Army of the Potomac uh, after McClellan leaves. We're talking tonight with Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. It is a book that looks at the intelligence gathering of Union forces in Virginia, uh, through the activities of people like Alan Pinkerton, Lafayette Baker, the uh, Richmond-based uh, spy Elizabeth Van Lu, and George Sharp. Uh, of those four, the George Sharp is probably the least familiar name to most Civil War readers. Uh, it was to me. Uh, who was George Sharp? Well, he is the least familiar, and actually he's the most successful uh, mm-hmm. uh, spy master, uh, just top-notch. He was uh, born in Kingston, New York. As I say, came from a very upper-class ba- uh, background, attended uh, some of the best schools in the country, uh, went to Yale Law School, and served, uh, lived overseas for four years where he learned to speak fluent French and Italian. Uh, he was a, reg- uh, a regimental commander when uh, General Joseph uh, Fighting Joe Hooker took over the command of the Army of the Potomac, and he needed an officer to translate a book in French on the uh, French Secret Service for him, and Sharp did it very, very skillfully. So uh, Hooker made him uh, his top spy master. He made him head of, uh, of a military information office with a bland-sounding name. Uh, uh, Sharp hadn't, you know, had combat experience. Uh, he was a good combat commander, but he had no intelligence training. But he turned out to be a quick study. He uh, he often went by the cover name of Colonel Strait. Uh, very often, people uh, agent people working for him didn't know they were actually working for the uh, Union Army. Uh, today, the CIA calls that a false flag operation. Uh, he set up, for example, a letter opening operation uh, to look at the mail and mailbags going from uh, the north to the south and back and forth. He uh, one of his uh, lieutenants uh, 
perfected what would be today called aerial propaganda. They were able to put leaflets in kites and sail them over uh, to the Confederate lines and drop them with, uh, uh, with sheets of paper that offered the Confederates money to defect, and it actually worked pretty well. Uh, he wasn't uh, adverse to using torture when he thought somebody uh, was, uh, you know, lying to him, uh, like a Confederate deserter uh, or, or someone who wanted to turn over information. Uh, but more importantly for Hooker and the other generals, he developed what's called in today's uh, spy business, all-source intelligence. That is, he raked in not only the information from his own agents, but also from the interrogations of prisoners and deserters uh, on the other side, uh, the reports from the aeronauts in the balloon, from signal officers who were intercept intercepting uh, enemy signals, and from scouts who were bringing in scout reports. He'd take all this information, synthesize it, and analyze it, and... Uh, supply very, very accurate, uh, concise reports to the commanders that they'd never had before. Now, you know, all-source intelligence sounds like a no-brainer no that you would do, uh, that you'd want to do, but before George Sharp, it was never done uh, in the Union Army or any army in, the, in America, for that matter. He was really decades ahead of its time. So, you know, at one point, for example, Sharp had a count of uh, Robert E. Lee's forces that was in within one one quarter of a percent uh, accurate uh, from the actual number that Lee had, which is a remarkable count. I mean, at the toward the end of the war, he was supplying Ulysses Grant with information on Lee's forces, so Grant had a better idea of the number and men in Lee's army than even Lee had. It it uh, it is remarkable how successful uh, he was, and, and Sharp describes uh, and you describe that. That brings me to one thing I do want to comment on this book that that I found frustrating. Um, the source notes are extensive, and they show that you obviously did a, an enormous amount of research, uh, looking at a, a wide range of secondary sources, but also a lot of primary source material. Uh, you've got things from the National Archives in here. Um, the format, and and I know sometimes authors are constrained by what the publisher wants, uh, but the format of the notes is that you will list the page. Uh, in the notes section, and then have a block of maybe a half dozen sources that were used in the preceding paragraph. And you mentioned just now uh, that, that Sharp would use torture, for example, to extract information necessary, and that caught my eye, and I thought, I'd like to know more about that, uh, because that's something we don't read in a lot of traditional accounts. Right. Uh, and so on page 240, you... you you say if Sharp and Babcock doubted a deserter's authenticity, they're willing to use torture to extract the truth. So I turn to the source notes, page 240, the paragraph ending the truth, and I'm seeing there are one, two, three, four, five, six. There may be 12 sources listed here. Um, which one is about torture? There's no way of telling. Um, to actually use this to get at that, I would have to get I would have to go to 12 different sources and read them all to see which one is the relevant one. Um, it, it's not the way I was taught to do it in grad school. And it, it just, it was a source of frustration because I, I said at the beginning of the show, I've had, I've read books by people who don't do Civil War history and then they try it and they write terrible books. Um, 
because I don't do the research. You've done the research, and it just it's so frustrating that I, I feel like I can't get to your research. Uh, the way well, the notes it, are constructed. It, it, I had, unfortunately, I had to condense down a lot of the source notes just because mm-hmm. uh, the book would have gotten way, way long in, in the back material. So I had to use a lot of abbreviations, uh, and uh, the my editors preferred not to have all the numbers in the uh, in the actual. Uh, that, text, that's that's what I was uh, afraid of. Right. Yeah, which they, they, uh, uh, which happens. So I mean, if you go, you know, and, and actually, I've had scholars call me up and say, well, you know, you know, ask about, uh, you know, a particular paragraph. You know, what are your sources for it? And I've been more than happy to give them to them because uh, if you, you know, there's a lot of abbreviations for you know different archives that are used because I, mm-hmm. you know, literally in dozens and dozens of archives. Uh, and if somebody truly, you know, wanted to go back, I mean, I can find you. The, uh, actually, it's the memos that uh, one of uh, uh, Sh- uh, Sharp's uh, aides tells him uh, or writes to him that describes the torture they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's you know uh, this is a book uh, written for a general audience, and in order to you know if it was written as an academic book, it would I'd have to add another hundred pages on it to explain the other other parts. So, uh, well, I. You know, I, I, I Oh, I hear but that but it's a good point. It's you know, make hope. <laughs> it, no, it's one of the things that that I talk about regularly on the show because so many fine books mm-hmm. are written by people who aren't uh, academic historians that are really good. Uh, the books are really good, and academic historians often don't write well to attract a popular audience. So the, the question of where a book falls on that scale is this for a. a popular or an academic audience is an interesting one and it's a real challenge um if you left out the notes altogether for a popular audience you could leave out the notes altogether uh they're not going to care for the people listening to this show uh they are going to care but absolutely they're going to care enough that they're actually going to want to be able to use the notes not have to contact the author and say which note are you talking about here yeah so Mm -hmm. But it's a tough thing to do because, it, like you say, do you write a, a, add another hundred pages and the publisher won't go for that, or do you restrict the scope and maybe do a different, shorter book? There's no easy answer. Um, let me move on. Uh, sure. I just wanted to, to raise that thought. Uh, no, it's a good point. Good point. You, well, you, you talk about. I mean, I learned about George Sharp from this book. Uh, Elizabeth Van Lu is is somebody who shows up in many textbooks as sort of a footnote. Um, and one of the first things that one often reads about her is that the people in Richmond thought she was crazy. And and you debunk that quite quickly. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about she that? She was very smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was, and a, she was a true hero, too. Uh, this, I mean, she a very, very courageous woman. Um, I mean, it, to I mean, because she didn't make her, you know, her views of the pro-union sentiments. She didn't keep them a secret, and uh, she became a pariah in her own city as a result of that. Uh, particularly, like at the beginning of the war, when she started aiding union, union prisoners that were housed in, uh, you know, filthy tobacco warehouses in Richmond that were makeshift jails. Uh, you know, the Richmond newspapers uh, 
published dark warnings that she should be caring more for uh, Southerners, not those hated Yankees. Uh, a Ku Klux Klan-like organization called the White Caps sent her a real threatening note with a crudely dawn, drawn picture threatening to burn down her mansion uh, in the fashionable Church Hill uh, uh, neighborhood of Richmond. Uh, but this was a woman who couldn't be intimidated, and she set up, you know, to say, an espionage organization of fellow unionists uh, in Richmond that Confederate authorities were never able to crack. Uh, in fact, the people in her espionage organization, each of them carried a carved peach seed that uh, identified them in the organization, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but she used some very, very good uh, espionage uh, methods and techniques uh, that you can find the agency doing today. So she and she was eventually recognized by the the union forces on the other side of the line as as a useful source of information. I, I thought it was particularly interesting to read about after the fall of Richmond how uh, people like Grant you know directly came to her to acknowledge what she had done in terms of of keeping them informed on what was happening within Richmond throughout the war. Oh, yeah, and George Sharp, for example, at one point said that Elizabeth Van Loo was really the only power of the federal government in Richmond uh, at that time. And he also said there wasn't a thing that Grant uh, uh, wanted uh, in terms of information out of Richmond that he couldn't get from Elizabeth Van Loo in her ring. I mean, she supplied uh, Grant, uh, uh, when she got f- uh, fully going, three reports a week uh, on troop movements through Richmond, on movements of troops from Richmond to Shenandoah, the Shenandoah Valley and back, on economic conditions in the capital, on the morale of its residents. It was all very valuable information. She also supplied uh, Grant with uh, the Richmond newspapers, uh, the daily papers, which had a wealth of intelligence in them. And she sent uh, along uh, with those papers a rose picked from her garden, which Grant thought was kind of a nice touch for his breakfast table. There's there's so much more in this book, uh, the role of uh, intelligence services and the Lincoln assassination, for example, uh, which we won't have time to talk about tonight. So let me just take the last minute to ask you the, uh, the Civil War talk radio time machine question. If you could go back to the Civil War era for 30 minutes and talk to one person for that amount of time and then come back to the present uh, – now that you've you've written this, read about these people, you can only choose one. Who would you choose? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> like asking me which of my three kids I love the most. Uh, and among these four characters, gosh, I don't know. Jeez, uh, I mean, they're they're all fascinating in their own way. Probably Elizabeth Van Loo because she. Uh, she was so courageous, she was so resourceful, uh, and she was operating in such a lonely fashion. It would be just fun to uh, sit down with her. Although I say, I say the other three I, I found fascinating, too. I mean, Lafayette Baker, I'd love just to be a fly on the wall uh, to, you know, watch what he was doing. Uh, and, of course, George Sharp was a, say, uh, you know, became a master 
uh, Master Spymaster, who incidentally never wrote a memoir on it, never said much about his, uh, his time uh, in the espionage service in the Union Army, which goes back to the old CIA adage that uh, those who don't talk know and those who know, I mean, those who don't know talk. <laughs> and, which, so, and, and, and Pinkerton I, and Baker both wrote a huge book. Lou, but it'd be, it'd be tough. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's well. Let me say this, listeners: if you want to know about those four characters uh, and more about the uh, uh, among Lincoln's spies and their secret war to save a nation, that's the name of the book to get. It is by tonight's guest, Douglas Waller. Doug, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Oh, it was good talking with you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.